Hello, welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. This podcast is a recording from Canola Palooza in Lacombe in 2019. It's an excellent conversation about fertility management in canola. It was recorded and co-hosted by Sean Haney from Real Agriculture and Real Ag Radio. And joining us are I'm Patrick Molecki. I'm a research scientist with uh, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Saskatoon. And uh, my program is the Oil Seed Agronomy. And my name is Warren Ward. I'm an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada based out of Northeast Saskatchewan. Hello, I'm Norm Flory, agronomist with Nutrient Ag Solutions out of uh, Southern Alberta. And lastly, Dale Federick, I'm a uh, Territory Crop Advisor for Central Alberta. Let's get right into it. All right, we're going to go right into the, the stand establishment angle for fertilizer. How can I safely fertilize? And this is, we're, so we're looking at a specific drill situation here, but we'll expand into safe seed place fertilizer. But the question, how can I safely fertilize for top yield with a single shoot drill? Norm, do you want to kick us off? Sure, I'll, I'll tackle that one. Uh, that's, a, that's a really big challenge. There's a couple of obstacles that we're really having to deal with there. Uh, the first one is, is that canola is super sensitive to any fertilizer in the seed row, particularly nitrogen. And canola also requires high amounts of nitrogen to get the yields that we're looking for. We're often looking for 80 to 120 pounds of nitrogen to get an optimal canola crop in, in southern Alberta. So to put that in a single shoot uh, system is almost impossible. Uh, even the use of a slow release fertilizer like ESN would help, but it, again, to reach those kind of uh, levels is pretty much difficult to do. We have to find some other way to get the nitrogen put onto the land. So the, the options would be change your boots so it's not single shoot and your hose system and everything else or apply most of your fertilizer in a different window. Is there a preference? Well, the, yeah, those are two good options, uh, Jay, to uh, double shoot, first of all, is, is, is probably the, the best option. Just put some boots on there that can put the fertilizer off to the side and a little bit deeper than the, than the seed. Or one can look at if, uh, just look at uh, putting on the fertilizer at a, at a separate time, such as fall banding uh, of the fertilizer, which works out very well. Uh, performance from fall banding can be very good if done right. Or even spring banding ahead of seeding is another option. Uh, but one way or another, we have to look at some way of getting the fertilizer away from the seed row. Dale, what's your preference? Preference would be to go to a double shoot system, but I think first of all, if the person has intention of staying with the single shoot system, you know, strongly look at replacing that drill, but you will have to look at for other options to get your fertilizer rates down. Most farms have taken the route of broadcasting the sulfur in the fall time, get it out of the equation, take it out of your tank. Second is to uh, fall uh, band your either ammonia and or urea in a concentrated form with a single shoot system. Then in springtime, you're left with your P and K or even broadcast your cane in fall time too, but just minimize the amount of fertilizer going down with seed as best you can with your system in place right now. And then the, the last option too would be top dressing in season. Uh, so you could, you could come in and, uh, and apply the bulk of your nitrogen 
at that uh, after seeding time, but that's a tricky one because you want to make sure you're out there in and in time to get that fertilizer where it needs to be when it needs to be. So it's a little bit more challenging option, but it is one one other that is out there. Can you break down that decision making process a little bit more? Because I, I think that a lot of people have it. You know, we saw that this year with the drought. They're like that was an input they could cut at the front end because of how dry it was. I'm going to cut back on my end. And then if I get the rains, I'll apply more later on during the growing season. But how do I actually know how much to apply? Well, weather prediction would be would be the first one, right? If we knew what conditions are going to be after we apply that nitrogen or after we top dress it, that would be very helpful. Not knowing that, though, we kind of have to go with, with the law of averages. And we know if we don't apply it, it won't be available. I know a couple of years ago there where we had uh, some really dry conditions, and then all of a sudden, uh, people did who were top dressing cut back. Um, and then later on in the fall, we actually had a, a, an extended fall and we did have moisture later on in the season. Where that adequate nitrogen was applied, yields were actually quite decent. Where there was not that upfront nitrogen applied, yields weren't able to reach their yield potential. So just because it's dry today doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be dry the rest of the season. And we know canola can be quite forgiving and uh, I think we just want to give it the best shot up front. So, so we do want to make sure we get that adequate nutrient on. If top dressing is an option, we want to take the logistics into account. It's a busy time of year. We want to make sure that we have a plan in place to be able to do that, you know, prior to that six leaf stage when canola is really going to start taking up the nitrogen. All right. What fertilizer, what nutrients, if any, should go in the seed row? Is there, is there any need for fertilizer in the seed row at all? Uh, yes. Um, there are those, that, like my friend, my, my colleagues have mentioned here that uh, you can top dress your, your nitrogen and your sulfur, uh, or you can put it prior to seeding, uh, probably in the fall or in the spring prior to seeding. But for phosphorus and potassium, for those products, you, have to, you can apply them with the seed. And uh, there are guidelines already where you can put at least your, 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 the separate of uh, phosphorus, say somewhere in the range of 22 to 25 pounds of uh, phosphorus can be added with the seed. At least that can uh, get the crop started going as well. I mean, then you can now later on apply the nitrogen. As long as you can take, if you take out your nitrogen and your sulfur, apply it separate at separate time, you can safely add sufficient, uh, probably up to 20, 30 pounds of phosphorus, according to some of the work that we are seeing, that you can place that with the seed, if you can, I mean, right from the beginning. So 20, 20 to 30, 25-ish pounds of phosphate with the seed, Norm? Yeah, that's, that's kind of where I top out for a lot of uh, uh, air seeders today that have about a 10% seed bed utilization. I like to max out at around 30, 30 pounds of, of P205 per acre. Or if they're looking at a blend, uh, like a 16-20-0-14 is a very common blend, uh, 100 pounds an acre of that product uh, is kind of where I reach the max. Has any work been done in the breeding to raise the tolerance of a for some of the fertilizer levels we're talking about? Well, uh, no, I haven't seen any studies where they have uh, increased the tolerance of uh, phosphorus um, uh, toxicity uh, or nitrogen toxicity. I haven't seen that. Some for you to work on, Jay. <laughs> Me? <laughs> uh, Warren, we'll go to you for the, for the next one. No, so Norm mentioned seabed utilization. Um, uh, so 10% uh, seedbed utilization being fairly common. 
and so expanding the seedbed utilization might be a way to increase the safety or reduce the risk. Uh, are there other ways to reduce risk for seed place fertilizer? One of the biggest factors is the one that we have no control over whatsoever, and that's moisture conditions. Uh, we've all seen it in the past where somebody's done something they probably shouldn't have, maybe seed placed way too much fertilizer and got away with it because they had a nice rain right after seeding and it kind of neutralized the, the negative factors. So, but, but that's not one that you can count on from one year to the next. Soil, soil type does play a, a role in that though as well. So your heavier soils are going to be a little bit more forgiving than your sandier soils. But again, all within reason, and I think you still want to keep those guidelines, the safe seed placed rates in mind, and, and not push beyond them if you can help it. With lower seeding rates, that just means fewer seeds down the row, uh, is that, does that actually help reduce the risk for, for seed placed fertilizer, just because they're, the, they're fewer seeds farther away from the fertilizer? It's a probability probability game, and I haven't ran the numbers. But the the quick answer is it's it's scary because if you've reduced your seeding rate, and you're still pushing high or higher than you should seed place fertilizer rates, you're you're at risk of really ending up with a plant stand that's well below where it should be. No, that's exactly it. If you've got to reduced rates, uh, seeding rates, and then you combine that with a little bit of toxicity, your your uh, eventual stand is going to be thinner again, and that's not something we want. We would, we would not want to encourage something like that, no. Okay, uh, so given on that same theme, we've got fewer seeds down the seed row. Um, if we're putting uh, phosphorus down the seed row or in a side band, say an inch and a half away or so, does it make a difference? Like with this, like it, it almost would seem to me that the difference in spacing uh, spatially would be, would be quite similar possibly. Some long-term research that uh, Dr. Ross McKenzie did in, in Alberta did show that more often than not, there was a benefit to be putting it right in the seed row rather than in the band. Sometimes the band was equally as, as good and occasionally a little bit better, but long-term numbers show that the best place to still put phosphorus up to the safe levels is still in the seed row. When you put it in with nitrogen, especially if you get high rates of nitrogen, the phosphorus isn't available to the crop. Can you explain why? Yeah, it's a bit of a concept there of what we call a hot band. The, the phosphorus and nitrogen are put down together, the nitrogen diffuses out from that band, and the phosphate gets trapped on the inside, and roots don't penetrate that hot nitrogen band to get at that phosphate for about two to three weeks. So a little that phosphorus in the seed row, 80-90% of the time, there's just a little bit of a benefit to having it a little phosphate right there in the seed yeah. row. Hey Dale, given what the, the drier moisture conditions, at least in some parts of the prairies this right. spring, um, do, you, do you think that may have been a factor in lower, um, like the seed nitrogen burn or fertilizer burn might have been a factor in lower uh, emergence rates this year? Yeah. Well, that certainly has uh, good logic to it as well. And that would make sense probably in some locations. And, and it really comes down to fertility, placement, rates, safe rates. Always want to reference that at the day of seeding. So if, if you have a dry seed bed and you're having a low disturbance drill with a narrow row spacing 10 SBU, then all of a sudden it would have an impact on the emergence or germination of that seedling. So day of seeding makes a critical difference and then taking into consideration, know your land, know what the capacity is in past experiences. So soil, organic matter, texture, all has a part to play. And a dry seed bed would increase the risk of uh, seed loss. I want to go back to a uh, um, topic that I raised right near the beginning, which was this fall application, and Norm, you raised this yeah. too. 
Um, is Warren, I'll start with you on this one. Is this something you think um, more farmers should consider? Is the, the use of that fall opportunity to get a lot of your fertilizer down? I don't know if I would say more people need to be doing it. It's an option for people. Um, and, and each farm is going to have its own situation where whatever they're doing is going to work best for them. So whether that, you know, if you're limited as to what you can do in the spring or uh, you, you want to seed up your speeding operation by not stopping to fill fertilizer as often, that's when maybe fall banding or even potentially spring banding does become a, a viable option. And, and it is a good option. The nutrients are there. They'll still be there when you need them. Uh, so there's there's nothing wrong with it, um, but there's really is that one size fits all just doesn't doesn't really exist for that. So to say more people need to do it, I don't know that I'd go that far, but it's an option for more people than are doing it maybe. If you're seeding canola, and you're just putting phosphate and seed in your in your seed drill, you could probably seed a thousand acres before <laughs> before you had to stop, eh? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's definitely advantages to that, and. We always see logistics that seem to trump the agronomy factors that we're looking at. So anytime we can do manage those logistics so that we can maximize our agronomy, that's something I'd be in favor of. Patrick, have you looked into, we're going to change gears just slightly, have you looked into liquid versus dry fertilizer, uh, maybe in particular phosphorus, because you often hear about the liquid phosphorus products. Is there a difference? Um, I, I haven't done in work myself comparing those two. Um, However, what I know is that uh, really there isn't a significant difference uh, between the granular and the, and, uh, and, and the liquid as long as they are placed safely uh, from the seed. I think that's the key, the key message there. Um, depends on what the producer has, because there are some producers that do not have uh, the equipment to do the liquid, so they will go with the granular. Or those who don't have the granular, they will go with the liquid. Now, uh, research has also shown that um, Regardless of what form of phosphorus that you are going to apply, uh, within a couple of weeks, they, are, they all revert to the same form. So the crop is going to take the same type of phosphorus uh, regardless, right? And as we know, uh, the plant is still very small uh, in the first two, three weeks, right? So it's not really taking up the phosphorus. So by the time it is ready to take up that phosphorus, regardless of how you applied it, it's still in the same form. Oh, that's a really interesting point. Anybody want to build on that one? Yeah, I'll just it's... Uh, just to, I was following a couple of studies, uh, well, one study in, in Canada and one in the United States, and they had tested many of these different phosphate products, some which claim better efficiency, uh, and so on. There's been a lot of attempts to make phosphorus more efficiency, but none of them have really done, uh, have, have been successful at all. So yeah, the bottom line is all the phosphate products that are available on the market today, all are gonna perform the same if they're applied at the same rate and at the same method of application. Yeah, and I'll just add to Norm, and one of the studies that I was thinking of in Western Canada was out of U of M, and it was exactly as stated, it was between seven and 14 days, all products convert to orthophosphate, of which the plant would take it up. Doesn't need to be a polyphosphate product, doesn't need to be more efficient at the end of the day, and day 14, they're all the same. So the cost benefit uh, still favors. Plain old monoammonium phosphate 1152 is still your best bang for your buck. What about liquid versus dry for the other nutrients? Is there even, does that even become an issue or is it a question? Well, from a seed safety standpoint, really shouldn't be a question because ideally we're not going to see those in the seed row anyway. So uh, uh, not, not a factor that we would normally be looking at. 
In terms of an efficiency, I, I like to look at more amount rather than type in terms of let's make sure we have the right rates in place and, uh, and the forms are, are less important to me actually than making sure we have the right amount of product there. Yeah, just, just to add to that, it's uh, generally I try to keep it fairly simple, but whether you're putting on ammonia, urea, or liquid nitrogen in the spring of the year by banding, they're all going to perform the same. You'll be splitting hairs, which is better. If you're looking at fall banding, liquids don't rank as high as because they contain a little bit of nitrate that's susceptible to loss. So that's the only place the liquids maybe don't quite fare out as well. But in the spring of the year, they're as good as any other product. Just one comment about nitrogen and whatever formulation you choose to use, but if you are using like an ESN product or a delayed response, is not to overdo the imbalance of too much uh, unavailable to available because the peak demand for the nitrogen is still going to be by the time we get to the reproductive stage. And if that plant doesn't have access to sufficient amounts at that point, we're going to take a yield deficit. So make sure it becomes available at the time of need. All right, in closing for the conversation, and this could take 10 minutes, which is fine, but I, I just want to get across, what's, what do you think are the key messages or the key practices when it comes to fertilizer management in canola? If there's maybe what's the most important thing that farmers should be doing, um, and, I'll, and as, as a second question to that, um, are, there, are there new ideas or is there any new thinking at all that you would encourage farmers and agronomists to think about? So what's the... What's the most important thing, Patrick, for farmers to be doing when it comes to fertilizing for canola? I think um, when we talk about uh, fertilizing um, uh, your crop, the first thing that we have to worry about is you have to know how much nutrients you have in the soil. And uh, to me, the first thing you have to do is to, te to, to test your soil. Know how much nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, as well as micronutrients that you have in the soil. And it's from there that, when you, that, that you decide and say, okay, we need to apply so much. And once you have decided how to apply, then that's when you have to, to apply, to think about how are you going to place safely those fertilizers, whether you are separating the crop from in the seed from the fertilizer in time or in space. So that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's, very, uh, that's very crucial. But the most important is you have to apply the adequate amount of nutrients one way or another without damaging your crop. Just, just to put that in quick summary, that's part of a 4R nutrient strategy. We can't have a fertilizer discussion without talking about 4R nutrient strategy, but the right, right rate, time, placement, and product is the... Well, there goes what I was going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my addition to the comments would be, uh, when you're selecting your fertility rates, two things. Be reasonable with your expectations of target yield you know, for your geography. Don't go overzealous, uh, over-fertilizing for a crop that you know you'd probably never achieve, and that happens on occasion. But in the same breath, don't underestimate your potential. And, uh, you know, be cognizant of what you, well, the, the area again, what you're able to produce based on the moisture that you would generally receive. And those anomaly years where you all of a sudden receive ex exponential moisture events uh, that you may not capitalize on, so you don't want to be under-fertilized or, or over-fertilized as well. So be reasonable on target yields. Just uh, maybe last, last point I had is just to manage the compromises too, because we all know there's that perfect world textbook answer, but in a lot of cases it doesn't quite fit on each individual farm. So if we do have to make some of those compromises based on logistics or timing or, or whatever the case may be, let's look at what, what else can we do in terms of rates or placement to, to try and counteract that compromise that we have to make. And what about new, new, Sean, do you want to jump in on that one? Yeah. I just had one question, or a question. I'll start with Norm. 
where where do we go from here? Like, what is the next big leap in in nutrient management in regards to how we're managing these crops? That's a good question, John, and I don't have a good, concise answer on this. I I still want to go back to what Patrick is saying, and that. I think we still got to take a look at rates. I, I still think there's still room for some improvement on rates of, of nitrogen, particularly uh, with, with canola. We can make some gains there. Um, I think the bigger gains in canola yield are going to come from other management practices, such as timely weed control, uh, pod chatter reduction, uh, disease management, and, and those types of things. Uh, but on the horizon, I'll let the others talk on this. I don't see anything on the horizon. I mean, I'm thinking ESN might have a bit of a fit. We're starting to push rates beyond 100 pounds of nitrogen. I think ESN has a place when you start doing those kind of things. I would just add as well, I think, you know, there, we can see quite often in scenarios where we're starting to lose quali quality of management for quantity. So once we get into some larger farming, farming acre bases, we start to forfeit some of the low-hanging fruit in terms of fertility, comes back to for, for our management. And we're, we're seeing a lot more broadcasting of nutrients such as nitrogen that are inefficient as broadcast mechanisms. We're missing out on the banding. We're maybe not having a balanced fertility program. And again, just to uh, chase some more acres, and, but we're losing the yield potential in doing it. The, uh, the, the best for our management strategy with, with the correct tools and the right amount of acre base will probably sustain our best yield potentials. I have one last question on, on loss. So, I mean, you're talking about, Dale, about being reasonable um, and, and, and broadcasting not being a good practice. But just so I've got it square in my head, if, if you apply more nitrogen than the crop can use in that year, but you've banded it, are you gonna like if it's a year or two years later? Is it still gonna be there for the most part? It is. Yeah, I think that's a very good question, Jay. We often think of what's not used as lost, and, and that's not the case, especially in our environment in Western Canada. We we live in an arid environment. We don't we have we don't get as much rain as the crop uses, so we don't have those huge losses that they do in the high rainfall environments. There will be a little bit of loss, but it's not as much as we'd like to think that, uh, because we hear kind of horror stories that crop is only 50% efficient in using nitrogen, so we lose the other 50%. No, the other 50% is there for the subsequent years. Maybe you lose five or 10% of what's left over under bad years, but it's not a lot. Yeah, I would agree that the loss mechanisms for N are pretty, you know, they're minimized, right? Especially when they're banded. But if they're broadcast under the wrong conditions, we'll have our greatest loss potential. And, you know, we, use, we lose a little through leaching, but not a, loss, a lot unless you have a lot of topographical changes. Probably our biggest one would be denitrification in ponding water and waterlogged soils, like we're experiencing in a lot of areas right now. Patrick, last word. Yeah, I think uh, to add on to the question, uh, the question that I was asked earlier is to mention that I think uh, one thing that's important is to, uh, for us to improve our efficiency as we use our nutrients. And that efficiency simply means, I mean, right now we have uh, plant breeders, for example, and other scientists who are looking at how do we enhance the efficiency of the, how their crops are actually use, utilizing the nutrient. So from the plant breeding point of view, we are looking at, uh, you know, root structure, etc. cetera. Uh, that's coming on the horizon. And also products that are more efficient in delivering uh, 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 nutrients, as well as preventing, like you mentioned, the ES, I mean, ENS. Yeah, that's very important because then you are preventing that, the loss of nutrients. 
Now, when we go forward, you know, especially if this under 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 wet conditions, we can still see uh, the the loss through um, through through nitrous oxide emissions, etc. Right? We want to prevent that. So the more we can use, the more the crop can utilize the uh, the fertilizer that has been applied, so that we don't remain with the excess in the in the soil. The better for the environment and the better for your uh, for your for your bottom line. Great, thanks guys. Thanks to Patrick, Warren, Norm, and Dale. And also to Sean Haney with realagriculture.com. For more on the four R's, you can look under the fertility section at canolawatch.org. And for lots more on fertility management in general, go to canolaencyclopedia.ca. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter.